In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Last time, we had finished talking about monasticism. Um, we had we were talking about women's monasticism, and there were still a few more slides, but I decided we'll just continue um, um, to the next part. Um, so after, th after the, the, the time where monasticism started to flourish, kind of the next milestone in the history of the church is the ecumenical councils. Um, does someone know what the ecumenical councils are? What are ecumenical? So these councils were councils that were convened, which at the time there was um, there w there was no separation in the church. So there's no division at all. So all the church in the whole world, there it was one. So at the time, whenever there would be like very important theological matters that needed to be discussed, all of the bishops of in the world would meet together in a council, and they would discuss these matters. Okay, and so each of these is called ecumenical council. How many ecumenical councils do we um, recognize in the Coptic Church? Three, right, three. The Eastern Orthodox Church, okay, so, so there's two branches of orthodoxy. There's the Oriental Orthodox, which we are a part of, and there's the Eastern Orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox, and I'm going to explain how the split between the two happened. The Eastern Orthodox, they recognize seven councils. They recognize the first three, and they recognize four more that we do not recognize because we were not, um, we were not part of them, right? So again, the idea of ecumenical means there's representation from all of the church, right? And because we were not present at those four councils, and we do not acknowledge those councils, we do not consider them to be ecumenical councils. So in the prayers, we always speak about three, that we have three councils, okay? The idea behind such councils came from the church at the apostolic era. So wh what was the very first council not, not included in these three? Call it the apostolic council. This apostolic council was held um, in Jerusalem, and we read about it in Acts chapter 15. Um, Acts chapter 15. And at this council, the it was a discussing, um, should the Gentiles be circumcised or not? The coming to Christianity, should they be circumcised? Um, so there was a council that was held in Jerusalem, okay? And it was a council of all of the apostles who came together and made a decision regarding whether the Gentiles should be circumcised. In the same vein, all of the ecumenical councils that came after, they were also convened to discuss some issue uh, regarding the faith. There were three types of councils. Okay, you have a council which is called a diocesan council, which is on the level of the diocese. Like we have a diocese. We are the diocese of the southern United States, and we have states all the way from Arizona all the way to Florida, the southern states, um, is part of the diocese. So in this diocese, the bishop, he could convene a council. Maybe there's a council of his grace, Bishop Yusuf, and the two auxiliary bishops, maybe also including some priests, and the council could meet to discuss some issues that need to be discussed, okay? Then you have what's called a provincial council or a local council, which is kind of on a larger scale, 
And then you have what's the ecumenical council, which is the entire church, okay, um, to discuss different things. Diocesan councils by the bishop, priests, and deacons to arrange and decide for the parish or diocese. Provincial councils by archbishop of the province, right, uh, headed uh, like, like the one that was headed by Pope Demetrius against Origen and two councils by Pope Alexandros against Arius. So these were on a, on a larger scale, maybe at the level of like the Coptic Church could have a council to meet to discuss something. But ecumenical council was all the Orthodox Church, the entire Orthodox Church, including, you know, every nation, every country, all, all the different um, representatives from the various Orthodox churches would be coming together to, uh, to convene in an ecumenical council. And as I said, the Coptic Church recognizes only the first three councils. We respect and follow the canons of provincial councils unless they contradict the Bible, Orthodox doctrines, or other council canons. Okay, and here are some examples of certain councils that were rejected for various reasons. Um, the first ecumenical council that was held was held in the city of Nicaea in 325 AD. And one of the main things that was discussed, like the most important thing that was discussed in this council, had to do with um, the teachings of a man named Arius, who was essentially teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ was a creation of God and not God himself. So that was the main issue revolving around that. Um, also, additional things, um, the date of Easter was decided. There was talk about whether heretics should be rebaptized after they come back to the church. So there was a group of people that said, if somebody uh, apostizes, meaning they leave the faith, and then they decide later that they want to return to the faith, should they be rebaptized or not? And the decision was um, not to rebaptize them. Um, there's also uh, talk about whether priests were allowed to be married and so on. So this was attended by 318 bishops. Um, Alexandrian dignitaries, um, such as Pope Alexandros and his deacon Athanasius with some of the bishops. St. Athanasius entered into a dialogue with Arius, who was the one who came up with the Arian heresy, which is that the Lord Jesus Christ was a creation and not coessential with the Father and his followers, and completely defeated them with his zeal, strong theological knowledge, and reasoning. And he formulated the Orthodox Creed, which was agreed upon by more than 300 convening bishops. So the Orthodox Creed that we say now in the church, its origin was from this council, at least the first part of it. The first part of it was established and formulated in this council to express the faith. Arius and his supporters disagreed upon the creed, and they were anathemized. When the council was over, St. Athanasius, who was less than 30 years old, won the admiration of all the bishops and the hatred of the heretics, and he amazed the emperor who told him, you are the hero of the Church of God. And at the time, Athanasius was a deacon. He was not the pope at that time. Um, other decisions of the council, as I said, Easter will be on a Sunday after the Jewish Passover, and the Pope of Alexandria is responsible to declare it to the other bishops. So if you remember, um, the Coptic Church is the one who came up with the EPACT formula, which calculates the date of Easter. And the way that Easter was calculated is that the calculation would be made to determine when the Jewish Passover was, which was related to the time of the Beschel Moon, and then the, the, the date of Easter would always be one week after, because the church did not, the church wanted to make a clear distinction between the Christian faith and the Jewish faith. So they didn't want that the Christians would celebrate the Christian Passover on the same day as the Jews celebrated their Passover. And because the date at the time, the date of the Jewish Passover was a floating day based on the Beschomon, so essentially we would calculate that and then we would decide when is the next 
the, the, the week after, and that would be the day that we celebrate Easter. And this is actually in the church, this is the same formula that we still use to today. Um, there would be no rebaptism for the heretics after their repentance, but those who are baptized by heretics should be rebaptized. So there was another question about what if you have someone who, like a priest, for instance, who was a heretic and was excommunicated from the church. And then this priest who was excommunicated from the church then baptizes someone. Is the baptism legitimate or illegitimate? Well, if, if, if the priest derives his authority from the church um, and the church excommunicates this priest, then this priest no longer has authority. So he, he, does, he no longer has the permission to perform baptism. So it was seen that the baptisms were invalid. So it was decided that if, if someone who has been excommunicated baptizes someone, then that baptism is invalid and the person should be baptized again. Also, the council allowed for the marriage of priests before ordination and no remarriage for the priests who were widowers. So if, they, if, they, if their wife were to die, they wouldn't be married again, while at the same time the bishops would be celibate. That was all decided in this council. All the attending bishops agreed on 20 other canons that controlled the general policy, pol uh, policy of the church. And St. Gregory of Nazianzen, he said the following. He said, when I praise Athanasius, virtue itself is my theme. For I name every virtue as often as I mention him who possessed all virtues. He was the true pillar of the church. His life and conduct were an example for bishops and his doctrine represents the Orthodox creed. If it weren't for Athanasius at the time, the whole world could have converted to become Arian in believing that the Lord Jesus Christ was not coessential with the Father, that instead he was actually a creation of God the Father, which of course is radically a radical departure from what we believe today. And, and really at that time, the entire world, all the Christian church was at risk for adopting that belief if it weren't for him who demonstrated um, that this was false. The next council, so that council was in the year 325 AD. The next council in the year 381 AD um, was convened by the invitation of Emperor Theodosius the Great, and it was mainly to discuss three heresies that had developed in the church. Um, one was a heresy by a man named Apollinaris, and he, he believed that the divinity of Christ replaced the human soul and suffered with the humanity, and he disbelieved in the equality of the three hypostases. What, what does that mean? We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully human, fully human, exactly as a human being. So his human nature is 100% human in every way. And it is for that reason that we believe that he was able to grant us salvation because he took on our humanity in its fullness and in taking on humanity in its fullness and sacrificing himself for our sin, he healed us in full. He healed our humanity in full. He granted us the forgiveness of our sins in full. So if in any way we find that the Lord Jesus Christ did not become fully human, then there is a problem because how is it that he can grant humanity salvation while he himself did not take on himself the fullness of humanity so there was this heresy was essentially said that the lord jesus christ he had a body but he did not have a human spirit that essentially his spirit was the holy spirit only and there was no human spirit okay but if he did not have a human spirit then he was not fully human and so then we come into the problem that we just discussed so this was the heresy of apollinaris um, Eusebius, 
he, he had another heresy, which he believed that the whole Holy Trinity was only one, hypostasis. Uh, hypostasis means like a person of the Trinity. Macedonius, he was another heretic. He said the Holy Spirit is not a hypostasis separate from the Father and the Son, and that he was created like angels of higher rank. So he believed that the Holy Spirit was not God, but like a force or something that was created by God. Okay, so again, this is an attack on the divinity of the Holy Spirit. This was attended by 150 bishops from the East. The council decided that the Holy Spirit is the third hypostasis equal to the Father and the Son. They formulated the end of the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed, or the Orthodox Creed, we call it Nicene because it was established in the city of Nicaea at the first council, which was held in Nicaea. So the first part of that creed was formulated in the first council. And then the second part of the creed, which starts from, yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, that part which focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit, that was added here at this second council because the second council was focusing on the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And these three heretics were condemned and uh, anathemized. The third council, which was held in the city of Ephesus in 431 AD by invitation of Emperor Theodosius II, and it was discussing two main heresies. The first one was a man named Nestorius, and he believed that essentially the Lord Jesus Christ was two people, two, two different people, the human and the divine, but they were not united as one, but as two separate. And essentially that the Lord Christ was sometimes human and sometimes divine. So, for instance, when the Lord was doing miracles, this was his divinity. But when the Lord was being crucified on the cross, because he believed that the Lord cannot die on the cross, or God cannot die on the cross, so he was only human at that time and not divine. Which, of course, brings all kinds of problems as well. Because, again, our salvation came because God himself died for our sins, not just a human being. Also, the second heresy was by a man named Pelagius. Okay? And he believed that the original sin, sin of Adam did not taint or corrupt the human nature. Which means that he believed that someone could live a sinless life apart from the grace of God and only by sheer willpower. That someone with sheer willpower could live holy and righteous without the grace of God, which also we reject. We believe that in the original sin of Adam, uh, all of humanity became corrupted, and so we, are, uh, we fall into sin because of our corrupted nature. St. Cyril the Great, who was the Pope of Alexandria, fought against Nestorianism before this council through his sermons and papal messages. Before the council... St. Cyril sent many messages to Nestorius personally, and he refused to receive it. So this is in an attempt to reconcile with Nestorius and to teach him the true faith. St. Cyril, Cyril sent him messages to try to explain to him how his teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ was two different people was incorrect. St. Cyril held a provincial council in Alexandria discussing Nestorianism, and he put 12 anathemas to differentiate between the true faith and heresy. Nestorius rejected the anathemas of St. Cyril and responded with his belief, supported with some Antiochian bishops, and St. Cyril sent to the emperor asking for ecumenical council. So the ecumenical council was held to address this issue um, that Nestorius brought about, as well as Pelagius. Nestorius, who attended with 40 supporting bishops, refused to change his mind before attending the council. St. Cyril was seized by night and imprisoned together with his friends, 
They read St. Cyril's messages, his 12 anathemas, and Nestorius' responses in the council. The council anathemized Nestorius and Pelagius and their supporters after some discussions. They adapted St. Cyril's expression of Christ's nature as the one nature of God, the incarnate word. And this is very important because this is going to come into play in the following council, the fourth council, which is where the split between the churches is going to happen. Also, the introduction to the Nicene Creed was formulated and approved, calling St. Mary Theotokos. Why is that important? The word Theotokos means bearer of God, essentially meaning that St. Mary, when she was pregnant, the person who was inside of her was God, truly, the, truly God. Because if we believe that Jesus is both man and God together, then we believe that St. Mary bore God in, in herself. Okay, So we call her Theotokos. Theo meaning God, right? So she is the bearer of God in her. Nestorius, because he didn't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was God all the time, that sometimes he was manifested as God and sometimes not, he didn't call her Theotokos, okay? He called her Christotokos, which means she is the bearer of Christ, that there is a distinction between the, 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 the Messiah who was born from her, and God himself, okay? So this creed, this introduction to the creed that was formulated, that we still also say before we, we recite the creed even now, um, refer to St. Mary as the Theotokos. And that's why the term Theotokos is very important. And actually, it, it expresses our faith that we believe in, um, how, we, how we believe about the Christology, how do we believe about that the Lord Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man at the same time. Okay. So then we get to, this is 20 years later from that council in 451 AD now, okay? It was attended by the number of bishops between 330 and 630 bishops. The Pope of Alexandria at the time, who was the one to attend this council, is Pope Dioscoros, okay? And um, also Bishop Leo of Rome, he sent two bishops and a priest to attend. This council is what resulted in the split of the Orthodox Church, which I mentioned at the beginning, into the two families, the Oriental Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox. And what was the crux of the problem? The problem was because of other heresies that were, as you can see, there was, there was, different, there was many heresies. Because of the different heresies and other heresies that I didn't mention here, uh, we might mention them in a little bit, um, the, the language that people used to describe the nature of Christ was very important. Because if you deviated a little bit in one direction, then people thought you were an historian. And if you deviated in another direction, people thought you were something else. Okay? So when different bishops came together in this council of Chalcedon, trying to express what is the nature of Christ, the language that people used was, to a large extent, misunderstood. And you had two groups of people that while they were essentially preaching and saying the same thing, they didn't, they didn't agree with one another. There was one group, which is the Oriental Orthodox, who, according to St. Cyril's formula, the one that we said here in the second to last point, they adapted St. Cyril's expression of Christ's nature as the one nature of God, the incarnate word. So there was a heresy that said the Lord Jesus Christ only had one nature, not two natures, right? that he was only one. He didn't have two. He was either only human or it was only divine 
or sometimes he was human and sometimes he was divine. So, so these errors, okay, like I said, cause people to be very sensitive to terminology. So this idea of St. Cyril who says that the Lord is one nature of God and the incarnate word is w means what? It means that Christ has one nature. It is the nature of the incarnate word. The Lord Jesus Christ is the incarnate word. He has a nature. But that nature is made up of two natures, the human nature and the divine nature. So whenever we express our faith in the Coptic Church, we refer to St. Cyril's expression that the Lord has the nature, he's the nature of the incarnate word. He has this nature. So it is a composite nature because this is his nature, the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ made up of two natures. When the Eastern Orthodox, or what later became the Eastern Orthodox Church, they heard us speak about the nature of the incarnate word. They thought we were speaking a, her a heresy called Eutychianism or monophysitism. Okay? And what that heresy means is that we only believe that the Lord has one nature, like only human or only divine. And so that was a heresy. So it caused a conflict, okay? It caused a conflict. So what happened? There became this schism between the monophysites and the diophysites. The monophysites, they believed that Christ had only one nature. The diophysites believed that Christ had two separate natures. What we are is miaphysite. Miaphysite means we believe that Christ had one nature made up of two. So when we refer to Christ as having a nature, we're not referring to the same thing as the monophysites where they're saying Christ is only human or only divine. We are using the terminology that St. Cyril um, formulated, which is that the Lord has two natures that are combined in such a way to make up his nature, one nature out of two. The theological dialogue between monophysites and diophysites was severely damaged. They accused the Church of Alexandria with Eutychianism, which is to be monophysite. While we ourselves condemn this heresy, actually there are many books that are written that claim that the, Coptics, the Coptic Church is monophysite. Okay, and this is false. We, don't, we are not monophysite. Many people say about us, we are monophysite. For the longest time, the Eastern Orthodox Church accused us of being monophysite. Okay? And there, like I said, there's still some books that, that say that about us. But we are not monophysite. We are miaphysite. Okay? But as you can see, the terminology is confusing. And it's very easy for people to misunderstand one another um, in such a context. Constantinople, through its political authority, put pressure on the Eastern churches to adopt Chalcedon belief. Okay? So there was also a political aspect to all of this. Okay? So... Constantinople, right now the, it is a Christian empire, okay? And so the, 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 the emperor has now a say in, in trying to manipulate the different affairs of the church, okay? So Constantinople, through its political authority, he puts pressure on the Eastern churches to adopt the belief of the, what became the Eastern Orthodox Church against the miaphysitism of the Coptic Church and the Oriental Church. So there started to be a persecution. I mean, we talked earlier about persecution from the Romans, right? Um, and later on, there's going to be persecution from the, after the Arabic invasion, of the Arab invasion, which we'll speak about after this. But now we have a persecution actually between Christians, which is maybe the saddest part, that you have um, Christians who are from the, 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 the Eastern Orthodox begin to persecute 
the Oriental Orthodox. In February 452, Emperor Marcion made a law enforcing the canons of the Council of Chalcedon. The Council of Chalcedon is the one who confirmed the two-nature theory, okay, the two-nature understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not the one that we were proclaiming, um, and threatening heavy penalties against all who disputed them. So at this point, the churches were not referred to as Oriental and Eastern. They were referred to as Chalcedonian churches and non-Chalcedonian churches. Okay, So which one are we? Are we Chalcedonian or non-Chalcedonian? Non-Chalcedonian. Because we reject the Council of Chalcedon, which found that the Lord had the two natures in our understanding in the, in the diophysitism way of the two natures which we rejected. Marcion started a severe persecution against the non-Chalcedonians, which is us among others. Many bishops, priests, monks, and believers were martyred, and it was recorded that 30,000 were martyred at the hand of other Christians. The first martyr after the Council of Chalcedon, a messenger arrived at uh, Alexandria announcing the exile of Pope Dioscorus. So, so he was the Coptic Pope. He was the Pope of Alexandria at this time. And he was the one representing the church in this council. Um, and the appointment of Proterius, an Alexandrian priest, as the Alexandrian patriarch. So what some people don't know is that the Eastern Orthodox Church, because they reject the Coptic Church as heretical, they have their own pope of the Alexandrian church, part of the Eastern church, right? Because they reject the Coptic church. So in Egypt, there is the patriarchy of the Pope of Alexandria, the patriarch of Alexandria under the Eastern Orthodox uh, church, okay? And this started at this time. So they appointed someone, Proterius, to be the Pope of Alexandria, but Chalcedonian Pope of Alexandria, while at the same time announcing the exile of Pope Dioscorus, who was our Pope at the time. This patriarch, Proterius, appointed by the emperor, was supported with power to punish those who might disobey the imperial command. So now you have very much this becoming a very political issue. This is not just a theological issue. This is not just two churches that don't agree on something. Now you have the government coming into it as well appointing a patriarch and, and, and telling them essentially to punish um, the non-Chalcedonians. The ruler of Alexandria, an agent of Constantinople, asked to hold individual meetings with the bishops to convince them separately. St. Macarius of Edco refused to submit to the ruler's orders. The imperial officer killed him with a fatal stab to, the first to be the first martyr of the Coptic church martyred by Christian hands. This was an example of how the Coptic bishops, priests, abbots, monks, and many laymen suffered oppression and martyrdom by the hands of their brethren, the Chalcedonians, and Pope Dioscorus departed in his exile in 457 AD. So he never returned again from his exile. He um, was martyred um, in his exile. With the exception of a few churches forcefully taken and given over by the emperor to the supporters of Chalcedon, all churches were closed, right? So they closed all the churches, all the non-Chalcedonian churches. Marcion died in February 457 AD and was succeeded by Leo I. The Copts consider it a good opportunity to ordain a pope to succeed Pope Dioscorus. So the Coptic Church, they are not just accepting Proterius, they're not just accepting the pope lineage coming from the Chalcedonian Church and coming from the empire. You know, we have our own popes, 
right? And so we do not accept it. So there became what was known as the Melkites. The Melkites is coming from the word Melik, which means king. They are essentially the line of popes that are assigned by the empire to rule over as pope of Alexandria, not from the Coptic church. This is the Melkites. Pope Timothy II, being a well-known theologian and ascetic zealous man, was ordained on the 26th uh, uh, of, of March in 457. Uh, Alexandria had now two series of patriarchs, the Copts, which are the native people, and the Melkites, which are the royal or imperial patriarchs, the ones who were appointed by the empire. The ruler of Alexandria considered it as a rebellion against Constantinople, and he took the side of Proterius, persecuting the Egyptians. So now there is another stream of persecution against the Coptic people from, um, from the Melkites. Pope Timothy II held a council in Alexandria, which anathematized Chalcedon's council and Proterius as well. This man, Professor Meyendorf, he says, emperors tried to solve the dispute by force. For us today, there is no doubt about the fact that the military repression of monophysitism in Egypt and in other places, the imposition of a Chalcedonian hi hierarchy in Byzantine, the frequent exile of the real popular leaders of the Church of Egypt all played a decisive role in giving the schism the character of a national resistance to Byzantine ecclesiastical and political control of Egypt, Syria, and Armenia. Right. So it, be, it turned from being just a theological issue to now it being like a national resistance. It became political. So in conclusion of this kind of period of history, the cops preserved their faith courageously, and many historians recorded that the Copts witnessed extreme humiliation at the hands of the Christian Roman emperors in a way never seen since the martyrdom era on the hands of the atheist Roman emperors that we had sp spoken about before. The gap between the Coptic and Byzantine churches became wider because now there's enmity between them. And then finally, this period ended by the Arabic invasion where the Copts had even bigger problems. So God willing, next time, we will begin to discuss the Arabic invasion, which will pretty much take up the whole rest of the time that we discuss um, in this series because of all the transformation that happened to the cops as a result of the Arabic invasion from this point on. Um, so we see kind of, as I said at the beginning, we see that the life of the Copt uh, in, in history was categorized by persecution from the very beginning. From the very beginning, there was one source of persecution after another, after another, after another. Which is why when we find ourselves here in America, that maybe for a long period of time, and maybe the reason why people came here is to flee persecution, we see that now persecution is following us again. Maybe not of the same type, and certainly not because of the same people necessarily, but we see the idea that we are being called to sacrifice for our faith in even the way that we live and, and how we stand up for our faith in the midst of a, a perverse and godless generation. So one of the important things that I hope that we all take away from this, and especially in the coming um, lectures about this, is that it is in the, the DNA of the Coptic Church to suffer for the name of Christ. And this suffering is not something that we should flee from, but this is actually something that we are proud of. And we suffer for the name of Christ, and we know that the Lord Jesus Christ will also reward us for the suffering, that we stand up for his name, and that we endure whatever it is he asks us to endure, 
This is the reason why the Coptic Church actually endured for so long, is because of the martyrs. It's because they, they witnessed to the truth of the, the church, the truth of the faith, and God preserved them even up until the present day. Any questions before we conclude? Yes. At the time, at the time we believed them to be the Diophysite theory, which is more like Nestorian. So we, there was a mutual excommunication that happened. We believed them to be Diophysite, and they believed us to be Monophysite. And so there was a mutual excommunication and condemnation that the other side is wrong. And like I said, there, there was a miscommunication from that. In more recent times, I think it was back in 1994, there was a dialogue that was held between both churches to speak about Christology. And the agreement was is that we were going to discuss it without using any of these hot-button terms that trigger certain understandings and just describe each church to describe what do you believe about the nature of Christ. And so it was concluded in this council that both churches had the same belief in terms of Christology. So there have been efforts ever since then to reunite the churches, and there have actually been uh, dialogue, and and the churches have expressed like some uh, many of the churches on the Oriental family, because the Oriental is Coptic, Armenian, uh, Syrian, Ethiopian, Eritrean. These churches have uh, all expressed, I believe, all of them have expressed that they are okay with the reconciliation to be reunited again with the Eastern Orthodox Church, and so that it comes back to be one church again. Many of the many on the Eastern Orthodox side have also expressed, but some have not. Some has, are saying no. So until we have unanimous acceptance of this, uh, unfortunately, we are still separate. The diophysite, the way it is expressed, is that they are two separate natures. Right, And we don't believe in the two separate natures. We believe in the two united natures. The two separate natures being like Nestorian, like, like the Lord is sometimes human and sometimes he is divine. Right? Yes, but that's what I'm saying is their fundamental belief in Christology is like us. But at the time, it wasn't clear on either side that there was agreement on on the natures of Christ. Yeah. No, the, the Diophysite is a heresy because it believes in two separate natures of Christ, which we don't believe. So the correct, w the correct one of these that we express our faith is the Miaphysite. No. No. Yeah. Yes. Which is why they don't consider that to be themselves. But that's what we consider them to be at the time.
okay? Well, I mean, all these are Greek words, and the words are, can, it gets very complicated, you know, and so that's why, like, when they decided to try to reconcile this, they decided not to use any of these words and just to start over, you know, and that's how they kind of came to that conclusion that we really fundamentally believe the same thing. Yes. Yes. Yes, up until now. This Melkite uh, lineage or, the, or like the parallel hierarchy has existed all the way up until today. Because technically, we are still heretics to them and they are still heretics to us, formally. That's why, for instance, we cannot go take communion there and they cannot come and take communion here. But there's also an understanding of what I just described, that there was a misunderstanding and that to a large extent, we do have very similar faith in, in the Christological sense. So that's why all the churches or many of the churches are wanting to, to, to come back formally and officially, right? But there's a lot of problems, you know, like you have to, like they consider Pope Dioscorus to be a heretic, the one who was our representative, our Pope at the time of the Council of Chalcedon, but we consider him to be a saint, right? So how do you reconcile that? So the practical aspects of trying to reconcile, you know, 1500 years of being separate, right, is difficult, but at least as a, as an initial kind of statement, the idea that at least our Christology is the same is, is, is a very important step toward that. Yeah. Yes. No, from the Eastern Orthodox, I believe. Yeah, not. A pointee. He was a pointee and he went and he lived in Egypt. Uh, even even up until now, like, um, I believe that there, uh, like, for instance, you have a Greek uh, person who I believe is, like, would be appointed. And he would come and, and he would have his own cathedral and he, there would be Eastern Orthodox people in Egypt that, that are you know affiliated with that church of course they're a very small minority you know because the coptic church is by far the l the majority but they exist yeah yes So some people say that, so when, uh, I don't remember where it is, but it says, it says that the Lord emptied himself. Like, for instance, if you think about, let's say when Jesus was a child, okay? Did he, did, was he truly a child? Like, was he truly had the level of being a child? Like, as a child, they don't know everything, you know? Like they, don't, they don't have full, like, they're learning, right? And even it says in the, when the Lord Jesus Christ was 12 years old, and he kind of was lost from, not lost, but his parents didn't know where he was, and they were searching for him. It says in that passage that the Lord grew in wisdom and stature with God and men, right? So the idea that the Lord can grow in wisdom, okay, means that 
one of the things that the Lord allowed on himself was to be emptied of, not, not to say he wasn't divine, but in his humanity, he emptied himself of something to where he, 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 he did not, um, in a sense, partake of the fullness of his infinity, of his knowledge, right? Even as one, he was on earth. So some people explain this this way. Other people say that what he is saying is just um, like, like, a f like a figure of speech to emphasize that how no one is going to know and not even the sun is going to reveal, right? But, but the way that we understand it is not, it's not taking away from the divinity of Christ. It's just speaking about how the relationship of the Lord when in his incarnation with his human nature right, that in his humanity there are things that he experienced that is kind of foreign to him being God. Like, for instance, when the Lord was hungry, right, or when he experienced pain. These are all things related to his humanity that as God he would not feel, right, but he experienced it. So one thing that he can also experience in his humanity is there to be something that he doesn't know. Not because he actually doesn't know, because he, he emptied himself of that knowledge. He chose to empty himself to submit to becoming human. And that's the mystery of the incarnation, is that the Lord allowed himself to be less for our sake. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No, the Catholic is different. Is that what they're called, Melkite Catholic? No, those that's um El Mamluk, right? I think that's I think that's different. So the Catholic is, is different. So the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church are the is the is the the rite of the Catholic Church where, you know, they they pray according to the Latin rite, the original rite. But the church, when they go to different countries, in order to like um, to make it easy for the people in those places to convert to Catholicism, they essentially allow them to pray exactly as they are used to praying. So, for instance, there is a Coptic Catholic. I, I don't. I've never heard the term Melkite Catholic, but maybe I'm wrong. There's Coptic Catholic. The Coptic Catholic. If you go to a Coptic Catholic church, they look exactly like the Coptic Orthodox Church in every way, and even the priests, the way they dress and everything. Nothing like the Roman Catholic Church. It looks very different. Um, but in but the only difference really is they submit to the Pope of Rome, so um, so they are they allow their the churches in these countries and stuff to to do that, even in Egypt. Okay, I don't think I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. There's a Maronite. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't know. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for every blessing that you give us. We thank you because you reveal to us and help us to understand the history of the church and to understand the sacrifices that were made to keep the faith for our sake even now. We ask, O oh Lord, that you grant us to have the same zeal and to keep the faith, O oh Lord, for the coming generations, 
so that it is not affected or defiled by any of the wickedness that we see around us in the world. We ask you, O Lord, to have mercy on us and to keep us strong in our faith and to forgive us our sins and to teach us, O Lord, how important it is for us to understand the faith and to keep it so that it is not defiled, O Lord, and that we do not forsake the, the beautiful gift that you have given us through the blood of the many martyrs that have kept it for us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.